Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our our library of weekly archive shows, and it is our goal to make a difference with each and every podcast. So welcome, everyone. Happy Saturday. And want to say that um, I am thrilled to have um, our guest today and our, and our topic because it deals with um, missing persons. And as you, you all know, that I am the coordinator for Connecticut for the Key Center for Missing Persons, as is Delilah for South Carolina. But it's a very specialized topic today with regard to missing persons, and uh, we will get into that very shortly with with our guest, Kimberly Kelly, from the San Diego uh, County area, and she's very skilled. But um, before we introduce her formally, I just want to say um, hello, Delilah, and uh, um, I think we both have a lot to learn today. Um, Is that not true? It's very true. Good morning. Um, Yes, I'm very excited to have our guest on because she's going to be addressing some areas that are near and dear to my heart as one who's been out in the woods searching for missing persons. And I think she will have a lot of great and valuable information for all of our colleagues. Absolutely. Um, I think um, when... Uh, when we talk about missing persons, a lot of times um, the elderly or maybe the the people that we don't necessarily focus on, but there are a lot of people who may have um, cognitive disabilities, one of the many types of dementia that set in after certain illnesses or stroke and Alzheimer's being one of a whole conglomerate of, of dementias. And um, I'm certainly familiar with some of this with my background, former background with uh, speech-language pathology. But we're going to get into this with uh, Kimberly and, and, and find out how she actually got involved with this and give some people some really specific and practical advice. And um, so just by way of introduction, want to say that, that, uh, that Kimberly has a very diverse career my understanding, she's a retired reserve lieutenant and SAR specialist with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. She's been associated with many um, nonprofits uh, with regarding search and rescue. Um, she is the author of Project Far From Home, Understanding and Managing the Search for um, the Missing Person at Risk and with Alzheimer's Subject. And there's also a DVD series that I believe she co-produced uh, called Plain Talk About Alzheimer's Disease, as well as many other things. So with that said, and that's a mouthful, and only scratches the surface, Kimberly, um, I've been wanting to do this show forever, so thank you, thank you so much for being with us and being part of the Shattered Life family. It's, it's a pleasure to have you today. Good morning. Thank you. Well, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome, and we're so glad, we're so glad to have you here. Um, 
we may have uh, many, many people who, who do search and rescue, but for those that may be family members or other people that may not be as intimately involved in what that entails, I mean, we may have some idea. Can you tell us um, what, what is actually involved? Uh, what are the main principles and purposes of, of search and rescue from, from your perspective and your experience? Um, the main principles and purposes of search and rescue honestly are just to help somebody who needs help when they need it. Um, generally, we typically think of search and rescue as being for missing hunters or lost hikers. Um, historically, if you go back, oh my goodness, there are, there are documented um, histories that go back as far as the 1600s, the 1700s. Um, we know that St. Bernard of the St. Bernardine monks on the day of his wedding essentially told his wife or future wife that he was going off to go join a monastery and um, she wasn't real thrilled with that. And he did. He, he founded the St. Bernardine monks in the Alps and the dogs that we typically think of there, that's what their whole purpose was, was to help travelers who were in need some people go back as far as biblical times and jesus leaving to go search for the one lost sheep the bottom line is is that somebody is in trouble someone needs help and someone else stands up to provide that assistance and that's really the whole purpose of search and rescue mm-hmm. um can, can you give um a a more um, nuanced answer with regard to your background because it is very interesting and diverse in terms of, um, how, uh, you know, how you how you started in this field and the other types of credentials that you may have. Sure. Um, started off in search and rescue about 24 years ago. And originally, of all things, um, I had been riding pro rodeo as an amateur doing women's stunts and drills and barrels and things like that. And um, the sheriff's department showed up at my stables and that they were looking for mounted officers. And I brought it home, showed it to someone who said, there's no way they'd ever take me. And that was enough of an incentive to go do the test and try out for it. And um, I did that both rodeo and the sheriff's department for a couple of years until it came down to a search <clears throat> in which went several days and the rodeo people were getting a little irritated said you need to choose one or the other so again the fastest way to get me to do something is tell me I can't do it and I left rodeo and I started doing search and rescue uh, pretty much 24 7 um, it's been 24 years this coming October I spent 14 years doing dive recovery um, where we never rescue anyone. It's always either evidence recovery or body recovery. Um, I did the horses for about six years, and for the last 20 years I've been working dogs in search and rescue. Um, I currently have two dogs that I work for cadaver work only, and I have been fortunate enough to do search and rescue, either participating in, managing, or working in approximately 15 countries and I'm currently a director for the National Association for Search and Rescue. Really great people in SAR. Wow. That, well, that's that's amazing, and, and and you know, quite a resume. Are the are the physical? Uh, well, I'm. I was thinking as you were talking that the your your training initially in uh, in being in rodeos is that must have been you know you must be very physically agile, and it just kind of you know, prepared you for search and rescue? Is that a fair statement or not? Uh, I think it is and it isn't. Um, one, being young and 24 at the time, 22 at the time, um, I was much younger and bounced back easier than I do at, say, 46. Um, but we see all um, shapes, sizes, and abilities in search and rescue. And frankly, some of the things that I could or wanted to do, <clears throat> my skills are different today. And mm -hmm. the person who serves 
coffee so the searchers can go back out into the field is just as important, in my opinion, as the searcher. The person um, on the bus who's doing the maps doesn't necessarily need to be able to climb um, a mountain or run a rig line, but they are just as valuable. So if somebody has an an interest and an um, idea that this is something that would be good for them, but they're afraid to try it because they're not a 20-year-old rock jock, I would suggest that um, they reconsider that. We need we need more people. Well, thank you for saying that because there are many people, including myself, that couldn't scale mountains with spastic cerebral palsy. But perhaps I could, you know, serve the coffee and all of that. And I know, Delilah, you've have have said, you know, sometimes you're in charge of the food and all of that kind of thing, right? Well, yeah, and there's there's just mounds and mounds of different layers that go into helping on any search, as I'm sure Kimberly can tell you. You you especially if you have fam- family members that want to be involved, you've got to keep them busy and out of the way, and yet allow them to feel involved. Um, yeah, and the, Food, of course, searchers have to have food, water, <laughs> the dogs, you know, every, there's just layers and layers of, of places that ordinary people can help. You don't have to be, you know, physically fit to to do some part. There's all kinds of little parts put together to make it successful. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's very important to say at, at the outset because people are listening, you know, you don't have to be, um, you know, somebody that's preparing for the Olympics. So so right after this show, everybody sign up with the queue <laughs> if you have it, you know, and, and or with Kimberly. Kimberly, tell us um, with regard, before we get into the need of working the specialized with Alzheimer's, um, about uh, founding um, the project Far From Home and how extensive in terms of staff is this, uh, you're, you're not a one-person band by any means, right? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, Project Far From Home, <clears throat> I started in 1995, and originally it was just the title of a training. We we had had a, well, let me take a step back for a moment. Um, I got my first search dog in 1994 and 1995, um, as one of the mounted officers, I traded with one of the canine officers. She had puppies, and I had a horse, and her daughter wanted to learn to ride, and I wanted a puppy. So we bartered lessons <laughs> for dogs. And yeah. it worked out really nicely. But my attention, my focus was on anything dog-related. I was trying to learn anything and everything that I could. And I was at a doctor's office one day. And there was an article in AARP, one of the magazines that was on the counter, and it showed a picture of a Rottweiler with a search team in Virginia. I believe it was Paws East. Um, And they said of the 70 missions or so that they run every year, half were for Alzheimer's patients, and that many of these subjects that they were looking for were either stopped by rocks or stopped by trees. Well, I had already been through a law enforcement academy, and I'd already been through a search and rescue academy, and I had never, in the two years I'd already been in, I had never heard this before. And I took it to our training lieutenant, and I asked him about it. I kept, I asked the office, could I have the magazine? All I wanted was the article. And I took it to our training lieutenant, and his response was, we don't search for those kinds of people, and don't bother, don't waste your time on this. Uh-huh. Well, how is this search team being called out 70 times a year and half of them, so about 35, are for Alzheimer's patients and a majority of them are stopped by rocks and trees? How is that such an outlier? So I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and it was kind of on the back burner, but then we had two call-outs back-to-back for Alzheimer's patients, both of them women, and one was found stopped by a fence line near a rock, and the other was sitting on a rock near a tree. And just now we have an outlier, and now we have two situations, and I went back to this lieutenant, and he said, those are not the normal thing. Those are not what we do. Don't reinvent the wheel. And then we had a search for uh, an older man in Escondido, California, 
multiple agencies involved, and he did everything that search statistics said he would not do. And unfortunately, he passed away during that search. Um, it was a, a devastating outcome. And I just felt can you, like can you could, elaborate on that in terms of doing everything that you, you wouldn't predict? For example, okay, um, in in search and rescue, there are very few statistics. Now, if you're in mountaineering, we have a whole history of mountaineering accidents, and the Mountain Rescue Association and other organizations publish accidents and falls that occur every year. There's a good database there. But as far as generalized search and rescue, there wasn't, at least until Robert Kester came along, there wasn't a lot of information. Back in the early 70s, a man named William Saratuck He was an engineer by trade. He was a dog handler, he and his wife. They were up in the northwest area of the U.S. He decided that he was going to take a look at search and rescue operations and kind of categorize them. And so out of approximately 224 searches that he had data on, either that he and his wife went on or that his team went on or that he collected from other people, there were only about 18 that were typically considered as elders, people age 65 and older. And let's be very, very clear. Today's 65-year-old is not the 1970 65-year-old. So using that as a database, he collected 18 searches, and what he found was that in Washington, at least, and in the cities that were helping him, people that were sending him search information, typically people age 65 and older did not go uphill. So that became the lost person analysis. And, and Bill kept revising everything until about 1974 because he died. Nobody carried on his work, and at some point his work was turned over to NASAR, and NASAR and other organizations have sold that material since then, but somewhere along the line, we didn't know that much about Alzheimer's in 1974. Somewhere along the line, somebody inserted the word Alzheimer's. We don't know if that's statistically correct. All we know is that in 1970 to 1974, the people were age 65 and older. We know that Alzheimer's disease alters people's behaviors. So we can't say that Alzheimer's patients won't go uphill because we don't know if any of those people had Alzheimer's. And so in 1995, 1996, when we had the search for this man in Escondido, we know he had Alzheimer's. He had been a hydroelectric engineer in his quote-unquote previous life. He had a history of wandering, which was not disclosed to the care facility. He was brand new into the care facility, which he was in, and that is a huge thing. The highest risk for wandering and most successful wandering is in the first 72 hours of being in a new environment. Mm -hmm. Um, The staff don't know you. They just want to go home. He's in a brand new home in a brand new city that he has no idea where he's at, and he just wants to go. Unfortunately, this particular care facility that he was in is in Escondido near Lake Dixon. All of the statistics typically say people with Alzheimer's disease or older people do not go uphill, except from this particular place You have Lake Dixon with a dam as a hydroelectric engineer who maybe is thinking he needs to go to work. Where is he going to go? Oh, okay. So that's where part of the focus of um, the training that I do is on. How How do we gain information through skilled interviewing that gives us a profile of our person so that we can better predict what they might do, what risks they might face, where they might go, so that we can better find them and bring them to safety. And that's how Project Far From Home came about. Um, It really is pretty much a a one-woman band show um, in that I get to work with a ton of people, um, but this is 
this is my labor of love trying to bring the search and rescue into families better ways of finding missing Alzheimer's patients. Yeah. Well, do you get requests uh, from all over the country and and beyond and you kind of have to triage? Yes, I do because I I am entirely self-funded. We do not charge families for anything. We do not charge agencies for anything. Um, But I have taught in person um, all over the United States and in Canada and have worked search operations for missing Alzheimer's patients over both Canada and um, the U.S., but also Mexico and in other countries as well. For that, I typically tend to do everything via phone um, simply because I, I don't have the ability to say, well, I'm getting on a plane and flying to Israel um, when I can do most of that over the phone. The, the people on the ground there really are the subject matter expertise. All they're looking for is consultation and direction, and I can do Technical that usually. Technical expertise with, right, with right. Uh, those outside. Yeah, well, that's, that's really um, cool that, that you can do that. Um, can, you, can you tell us um, somewhat about your, your protocol and, and how you would, you know, a, what would be a typical scenario and, and how you would approach a family and what to do? Typically, people with Alzheimer's disease, um, they wander, and I use the term wander loosely because people, I think, get in their mind that these are are individuals who are walking around aimlessly when you use the word wander. I'm using the word wander to simply mean that they are not where they're supposed to be when they're expected to be there. Um, so wandering can be can be evasive. It can be aimless. But typically people wander for one of five reasons, food, fear, frustration, pain, or obligation. Um, I want to go home. There's this person here who says they're my spouse, and I don't recognize them. I'm very afraid. I am <clears throat> putting things in safe places because someone is coming in and stealing my things. I hear a noise I cannot recognize. I am reverting back to a past experience um, or obligation. I have to go pick up the babies from school or I have to go to work or if I'm not on the job site, the foreman's going to get angry with me. So in part of dealing with the families, it's, it's twofold. Uh, well, it's more complex than that, but One, I'm trying to find out information about this person and why they might be missing. But two, I'm also trying to look at the dynamic of the family and what is not in place that they need that would prevent this in the future. Maybe nobody has ever explained to them that wandering is a part of Alzheimer's disease. Or maybe that they don't have enough resources to care for all the things that they need to do. We had a a woman in San Diego who went missing Oh, my goodness, this has been about 10 years now. Um, And typically she lived with her son, and her primary caregiver was her daughter-in-law, except that on this particular occasion, everybody in the family had a very, very violent bout of the flu catching this, so they sent mom to go stay with the daughter, the son's sister, the daughter-in-law's sister-in-law, except that woman was not only taking care of her own family, it included her 21-year-old son who had profoundly severe autism. So now she's trying to take care of her mom and her son and her mom and her son and going back and forth between both of them, and nobody really thought that that was going to be a problem, but now you have mom who's in a new environment with somebody whose schedule is also equally needy, and it shouldn't have been a surprise when mom went wandering, but the son literally came unglued. How could you let this happen? Well, I don't think anybody let it happen. This was something they just didn't have enough resources to manage. It sounds like they were overwhelmed, yeah. Absolutely. And so part of 
part of search and rescue is obviously how do we find this person and bring them back home safely now, but also how do we mitigate or minimize future occurrences of this happening again. Most people with Alzheimer's disease will wander six to eight times before somebody goes, you know, I think we have a problem. Um, And unfortunately, any time that someone wanders, they're at significant risk of injury or harm or death, either to themselves or someone else. I don't don't want people to live in lockdown. I want people to have fully independent lives, but we need to make sure that they're as fully independent as possible while also maximizing safety. Does that make sense? Yeah. When when you say six to eight times, uh, can you qualify that and say, when you say, could it be like to the backyard or the end of the driveway or down the street, or does it really vary in terms of each quote-unquote wandering incident? Well, I, I think that um, it's B, all of the above. Okay. So <laughs> here, here would be an example. I have an 18-year-old daughter who has cerebral palsy, a developmental disability, and an intellectual disability. If I go looking for Megan and I expect her to be here at the house and I go in because she went to go lay down for a nap and now she's not in her room and I search the house and she's not in the house and I check the pool and she's not in the pool and I check my neighbors, oh, there she is. Did she wander? Well, technically she did. She's not where I expected her to be. But... Did she wander because she walked by and I was on the phone or on Facebook or something else and she said, hey, mom, I'm going to the neighbor's house and I just didn't hear her? Well, that's a little bit different. When I look at wandering, most family members don't recognize wandering for what it is. Um, And again, we go back to what is the purpose or the reason for the wandering. Um, Dave Okada He's a lieutenant up in Salem, Oregon, super, super great guy. His dad did not have Alzheimer's but had a similar dementia. His dad had a very long career as an airline pilot. If his dad decided, I need to go to the airport this morning because I've got to go to work, well, in his mind, he's going to work. To someone else who says, Dad, you retired five years ago, that's wandering. Um, mm-hmm. Dave's dad did get lost at one point in San Francisco. He saw a man drop a, a gum wrapper on the ground. He went over, picked up that gum wrapper, and followed this man through Chinatown trying to give him back this gum wrapper. I would consider that wandering. Someone else might go, oh, we thought he wandered, but we found him in Chinatown. Well, uh-huh. those, wow. are, those. does that make sense? Yeah, I guess it's from the the context of what you're talking about and the person's particular history and and the perspective. Or, I mean, is am I gauging that right? Because not everything is clear cut. Right, and and many times family members will panic, saying, "I didn't know where you were, but then I found him at the neighbor's house, and it was okay." That's still a wandering episode. Um, we had a, a an older man who was Dutch by birth, who lived in Canada and had gone on vacation in Mexico with his family. And he walked away from their vacation rental. He has never been found to this day. But in talking with his family, they did not recognize a history of wandering that was increasing. And the response was, well, we thought he'd wandered, but then we found it. I had to finally explain to them, he'd been missing 10 days at this point, that, okay, let's say that we find your dad today. Would you say that, oh, we thought dad was missing for 10 days. It turned out he was really in San Juan uh, at a beach house. And they said, well, no, he's been missing. And I said, it's the same thing. So when your dad walked away before and you didn't know where he was and you found him in town, it doesn't negate that he had left and you didn't know. Right. So do you give them tools to identify for their particular um, person's habits what wandering may be or, or may not be, or is it a moot point by the time you get to work with the family? No, it's 
it's not a moot point in that if I can help figure out a potential reason why someone left, I have a better chance of finding them or responding to them correctly in the field. So here would be a good example of that. Um, There was a man in Maryland, and we'll just call him Andrew, Um, very, very nice man, a little short man. Uh, So I'm looking at distance and travel and capability and physical ability in the field. He was extremely overweight. He had wandered away once before, um, at least once that we know about on foot, but he didn't get very far. The bigger problem was that he had left once before. He had taken someone's car in the neighborhood, just found an open car. You live in a rural area. A lot of us leave our keys in the ignition or in the center console. He got in the car. He drove away. Now my search area is really big. So I need to find out how far is this man able to get. Um, He was Polish by birth. He did not um, speak Polish easily, but it had been a birth language. So now I need to know what is he going to be responsive in. The more our stress level escalates, the more we revert to primary languages. So that's a big question for me as a searcher. What language does this person read, write, speak, or understand? Turns out they've been searching for this man for days. Nobody had realized or connected that this man had actually been a Holocaust survivor. And the day he went missing was the opening of hunting season, and there was a gun range down the road. And that in all likelihood, searchers who were in uniform – many of them armed with dogs, with helicopters, out calling for him would not have been something that he would have responded positively to. And unfortunately, he did pass away in the field. His remains were not found until several years later. And he was in an area that had been previously searched repeatedly. My opinion is that he evaded the searcher's out of fear that he would be taken back to a camp or that they were there to harm him. Oh, wow. In doing those interviews, if that can help us revise how we search, then that's great. Um, We find people faster. We find people better. We find them with less risk of injury or exposure or ultimately, like Andrew, passing away in the field. Um, so the, the, the search interview really needs to be very, um, robust, but there are also going to be things that the family is not aware of that doesn't, that they don't know, or that they may not share that the searcher themselves, that interview begins before you ever even talk to somebody as, as a searcher approaches the house. So let's just use a dog, for example, a dog handler, and they're going to the house to get a scent article. Or maybe you have a tracker who's going to the house um, in order to see if they can pick up sign uh, and a trail going someplace. Going to that house, you should be paying attention before you ever get to the house. Um, Look at the mailbox and the driveway coming up. Um, look Look at the front door. Um, the front door is a, a really common place a lot of people put notes on. We had a woman here in San Diego um, that her daughter absolutely denied any history of Alzheimer's disease whatsoever, but there was a note on the back of the door that said, Mom, for safety's sake, do not open this door to anyone you do not know or are not expecting. We don't write notes for that like that for people who are cognitive. So even though the daughter is saying, no, my mom doesn't have Alzheimer's disease, she's writing notes all over the house. And she couldn't read them or she couldn't process them. Yeah. Oh. Well, and, and, that dep- and that depends. Yeah, absolutely. Processing of reading and writing becomes very difficult for people as Alzheimer's and other dementias progress. Um, so knowing what is the capability of this person um, realistically is important to know. Mm-hmm. Well, Kimberly, is there are there certain things that family members of Alzheimer's 
um, can do as a preventative measure, like, you know, tracking equipment or something maybe as simple as, as making up a notebook with this person's past history, past addresses and locations that, you know, that they could have on hand that in the case that something like this would happen, all they have to do is pull it out and you've got that information. Um, yeah. I think, right. you know, what we're looking at is these people with Alzheimer's and dementia are at a much higher risk of going missing than someone who doesn't have it. Correct. Correct. So um, you asked a a very um, important question and it's unfortunately got a very complex answer. So let me try and break it down into some pieces. Um, First is there, are there things that people can do to help reduce wandering? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, for, for someone to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, they need to have the confusion or that lack of cognition that we typically associate, the forgetting. Everybody forgets stuff. We all forget where we left our keys. We all forget where we parked the car. We all go into a room and we forgot what we went in there for. That is normal, totally normal. I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, my God, I caught the Alzheimer's disease because they can't remember where they left their keys. Alzheimer's disease, where I start getting very worried, is when people forget what a key does or what a key is used for, Um, that they insist that the car that they're driving is actually a car that they used to drive 15 years ago. That's the difference. There is a a very distinct loss of memory, but Alzheimer's disease is bigger than that. And for someone to be diagnosed, they have to have that confusion but they also have to have at least one, most doctors insist on two, of three other conditions. And those are agnosia, aphasia, and apraxia. Agnosia is a loss or reduction of the brain's ability to interpret visual images. So if I were to show you a picture of a big golden M, most people would automatically, it doesn't matter whether they speak English or not, most people would recognize that McDonald's. That's a type of memory called semantic memory. It's visual-based. For somebody with agnosia, they may drive onto the wrong side of the freeway. They may not recognize a spouse. They may not recognize facial cues given by someone. They may look at it as an officer and see a uniform and mistake it for military instead of law enforcement or the neighborhood cop. Um, They may look at somebody else's dog or somebody else's car and think that's theirs. So agnosia changes the way you see things. Aphasia involves language, both receiving and giving language. And apraxia is fine and gross motor skills. One of the most basic tests involved in Alzheimer's disease, obviously ruling out everything else, but is a standard DUI test. What is their spatial awareness? What is their balance? Are they able to operate zippers or small, fine things? Um, So to reduce wandering, you have to figure out, one, what is the cause of the wandering? Someone who thinks they need to go to work is going to behave very differently than someone who thinks he's trying to escape a Holocaust camp. So what is the need that they are trying to satisfy and then satisfy that need? For reducing wandering, some of the most basic things involve looking at the agnosia or the aphasia or the apraxia. With the agnosia, if I put a dark or a black or a hunter green colored mat in front of a door, to you and I, it looks like a mat that we wipe our feet on. To somebody with agnosia, that may look like a four-foot hole in front of the door. Semantic memory, going back to that McDonald's sign, semantic memory is one of the last forms of memory to go away. And we have been conditioned over our lives to recognize certain things as warning signs. So like a stop sign. Everybody knows. It's red. It doesn't matter what language it's written in. It's an octagon, and you need to stop there. Putting a stop sign on a door can be helpful for some people. Uh, writing a note, especially a white note on a white door with black lettering, probably is not going to be that useful. But if I already know that this person has agnosia, I could buy a 
fool the eye or a trompe poster of a bookcase and cover that door with that bookcase poster. Nobody goes through a bookcase unless you're Harry Potter, but to somebody with <laughs> Alzheimer's disease, that doesn't look like a door anymore. So there's, there's things that families can do. Then you asked about tracking devices. I really hope that nationally we could revise the language on that a little bit and call them location devices because even with sex offenders who have a GPS monitoring system on them, nobody's sitting there watching it 24-7. And I do find that whether you have a child or an adult with autism, or Alzheimer's, people who are prone to wandering, that I actually see wandering increase when somebody gets a location device because families relax their vigilance. So my dad wanders, my dad wanders, my dad wanders. I went out and I bought this nifty little thing, and now all of a sudden I don't have to watch the door so much anymore. And now he slips out. Nobody is monitoring these quote-unquote tracking devices until they're activated. Um, and then at that point, the reason they're being activated is because they wandered. Uh, so good point. At, at best, these are location devices that work sometimes. There is a number of devices out on the market. Um, today is actually, I believe today or yesterday, I think it's today, is the anniversary of Samantha Runyon, who was abducted and murdered in Orange County. It's the anniversary of her disappearance. Um, her mom created the Joyful Child Foundation. There, the year that Samantha Runyon went missing, Daniel Van Dam went missing, Jahi Turner went missing, there were a, a large number of child abductions that made the news. And one of the products that came out in response around that time was a, a watch called Wearify. Um, there is another product called um, CareTrack, and CareTrack has been around since the 70s. It was originally a wildlife tracking system. CareTrack then morphed into Project Lifesaver. The, these devices all work differently. Wearify worked off of GPS. CareTrack and Project Lifesaver is a radio frequency there was another product called M-Finders that worked off of a cellular base. At least one of these companies has claimed a 100% find rate. I can tell you absolutely that is incorrect. There is no product that will work in 100% of the environments 100% of the time. What people need to realize is that there has to be a redundancy of systems. So one of the easiest and cheapest ways that families can assist with, with wandering would be a medic alert safety alert bracelet, just like if you were allergic to penicillin. Mm -hmm. I would put names on clothing. I would put a card in a wallet that says, if you find me, because if, if you have somebody who's driving or gets lost, law enforcement is generally going to ask for their ID. So taping a, a note to the back of the driver's license or senior ID that says, if you find my dad, please call me at, and having a phone number there. So now we have a bracelet and that. Um, if they have a cell phone, you know, we can get uh, court orders in order to track cell phones, but that takes some time. So set up your cell phone account at, hey, dad, here's your phone which needs to be kept charged and needs to be with you for this to be worth it. But if I can log on to AT&T's website as the account holder and see where that phone is or on an iPhone, locate my iPhone, that can help us reduce some of those wandering instances. Um, but people just need to realize that there is never going to be anything that works 100% of the time. Right. Well, I think those are really good suggestions. Um, when do you typically um, come into the situation? Is it rare that in the very beginning, like you say, maybe the sixth time that they have wandered, or is it the scenario where, ooh, excuse me, they've been missing for quite some time and you get called? Um, it really depends. And in the United States, search and rescue is 
is run very differently depending on your particular state. So for example, in California, like Colorado, Oregon, a number of other states, search and rescue is assigned by the state to the county. Generally the highest, in California it absolutely is, the, the highest county enforcement level would be the sheriff's department. So by law, search and rescue is assigned to the sheriff's department who has the responsibility but may or may not have the manpower to actually pull deputies off the street to go do that search. The missing person comes in, you might get a deputy or a community service officer. If the person is not found right away, then the SAR coordinator gets notified. The SAR coordinator then looks at their group of background and fingerprinted trained volunteers and then activates them. So search and rescue is very rarely ever the first person out the door. Uh, mm -hmm. In other states, New Mexico, for example, there is one single SAR coordinator for the entire state, and he or she runs that and has teams that are approved that they then contact. Other places, especially as you go further east, you have independent standalone 501c3 nonprofit teams. You have, um, there are unfortunately a few for-profit teams here in the United States. And the further east you go, you may see more fire department teams. So how their state operates really determines how quickly someone with search and rescue background deployed out. And in some cases, it might be three or more days. Mm -hmm. When I get called in, um, it really depends on who's doing the calling. So I may very well get a phone call that someone else may not, but I also typically don't get that call until three or four days after the search has been going and they've run out of ideas and they don't know what else to do. Okay, um, so you're the last line of defense there and you, you come in and they're really looking for skilled help at that point. At, at, yes, at, at that point. But mm -hmm. um, for most people in search and rescue, let's just go with the best case scenario the person went missing today at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Family looked for them, notified law enforcement. Law enforcement determined that this was an issue. Law enforcement then activates search and rescue, and search and rescue is on the scene within 5 to 10 hours. That would be best case scenario. But we're still talking about a window of survivability that is significantly impacted the longer we wait to get SAR activated. We know that from Robert Kester's records that if a person is not found within 24 hours, if they're found at all, there's approximately a 46% mortality rate. We need to have, one, a better response um, for missing at-risk Alzheimer's patients. But going back to what Delilah said, she asked if there was something people could have on hand. There is. There is a book called um, In Search of the Wanderer by Mark Warner, and it's available on Amazon. Um, and in transparency, I did contribute to it, but I don't make anything off of it. So if people can buy the book, that's great. And if not, I will send you whatever I sent in. But mm -hmm. okay. uh, it's, it's sort of a reverse baby book. Um, it discusses wandering, and it's, it's a journal that's separated into three main sections that the families fill out beforehand and should keep up to date. Um, do it in pencil so that you can change information or medication or so on. But that if somebody does go wandering, that they can hand that to a law enforcement officer, even if they're brand new out of the academy, and they will have a guidebook on notify search and rescue, look in these areas, things to watch out for um, to help reduce that negative outcome. Well, that sounds like it would be very practical and, and handy. Um, and when you go in and do your assessment, I know we had um, talked about this a little bit the other day, um, is your protocol, like, because time is of the essence, is it a checklist format when we were speaking of doing, um, assessing someone's closet and their ability to go in and 
choose their clothing gives you a lot of kind of quick down and dirty information. Where how does where does that fit in the scenario? I I think um one, I think it's important that people understand that um, by the time search and rescue gets on scene, the family has already usually been interviewed two to five times by different people. And the interview questions are almost always the standard, uh, what's the person's name, what's their height, what's their weight, do they have scars, marks, tattoos. By the time that I ever am um, asked to come talk to families, I'm about the fifth one they've talked to and I'm the last person that they want to talk to because they've already answered these things. Their stress level is very high. Um, when I was with the Sheriff's Department, I retired in 2007. Um, I was a reserve, so I wore the same uniform, same firearm, same everything. But one thing that was different was that I was typically female. And I was associated more with search and rescue, not so much patrol or interrogation or any of that. When I would come in, all that people saw, unfortunately, though, was the uniform. So as we talked about the other day, I tried to pull more of the um, Sheriff Andy from Mayberry or Columbo kind of thing, a little more schlumpy. Um, if I could, depending on the safety of the environment, I'd usually leave my firearm and my, my duty belt in the car um, because I didn't want to come in as an enforcement tool. I wanted more to be the grandma whisperer, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I would ask, typically, if I could get a cup of coffee, and I don't drink coffee, or if I could use their restroom, and that did two things. One, it gave the family something physical to do, and it started a relationship with them. In being able to use the restroom, that's where most people keep patients, but I can also look at things like, are there grab bars on the toilet? Are there assistive devices in the shower? Um, how clean is the bathroom? Again, that spatial awareness of praxia that we talked about, are there medications on the counter? Those are giving me clues already. I've already looked at the front door. Are there notes on the front door? I've already looked at the cars as I'm walking up. Are there scrape marks on the car where now I'm looking at spatial awareness and visual acuity? Now when I sit down and talk with them, I explain that they've already been asked a bunch of questions, and I got that. Um, I want to ask them some different questions. Um, and then I usually ask, how does your dad put his pants on? And this is a question that they have never been asked before. So it's straight out of left field. It's not scars, marks, tattoos. And for this particular generation that we're talking about, most of the time the answer I get back is one leg at a time like everybody else. It breaks the ice. I laugh like I've never heard that before. It's the answer I sort of expected but what it does is it opens up a relationship with the person I'm talking to. But it also gives me really good feedback. If someone can go in, someone with Alzheimer's disease, my dad, who's 77, can go in and pick out his own clothes, and he puts them on in the right order, and it's appropriate to the event and the environment and the time and the weather, all of a sudden my search area just got pretty big my dad's going to look like everybody else. And if he's in trouble and asks for help, someone's probably going to give it to him. They're going to give him a ride, going to recognize that he's wandered because he's well put together. If he can't do those things, put his clothes on in the right order, in the right manner for the environment, then people are going to start paying attention. And if his balance, that apraxia, is so bad that he has to hold on to a nightstand in order to pull his pants up, or he's got to sit on the bed and he's wearing sweats because he can't do zippers anymore. My surgery got a lot smaller, but in all likelihood, he's going to be down and on the ground because he won't be able to navigate curbs or won't be able to navigate stairs that well. And so as a searcher, I need to be able to pay attention to that. From that one question, how does your dad put his pants on, I can get a whole host of information. Yeah, that's very important. 
it's it's huge because if I'm looking for somebody who um, is up and capable and moving, but I never search beyond the backyard, I may or may not find him. Um, on the other hand, if I think, hey, this guy's really put together, I may not look in the ravine behind the house. Um, well, Kimberly, what what type of recommendation, since you've been, you know, very prolific with this type of a search, what kind of recommendations could you make to, let's say, law enforcement agencies and, and the like that would um, streamline this search process that would make it, you know, it's a top priority and time is of the essence? Where can we cut the time down so that we have a better um, a better ability to find this person quickly? Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, and, and part of that honestly involves a lot of pre-planning. Um, and, and typically law enforcement has to deal with a lot of things that are very high priority on a daily basis. Searches can be a high priority, particularly if we're talking about a child or it's bad weather or we already know that this person is at risk. Unfortunately, what happens and has happened and will probably continue to happen is that the more people do wander, the less, the less urgency we assign to it. So, for example, we had a, a man here in San Diego um, We'll call him Mark. Mark went missing. He had uh, an intellectual disability. He also had Alzheimer's disease. I think that's important for people to know that um, persons with trisomy or Down syndrome, generally, if they live long enough, will develop type 2 or early onset Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's almost a guarantee. Um, so Mark has an intellectual disability. He has a physical disability in that the body shape that we associate with trisomy or Down syndrome changes their ability to respond to the environment. And he has Alzheimer's disease. The first time that Mark went missing, um, there was a search and rescue training. So everybody was actually already planned for the day, had their food, had their uniforms on. They just diverted from the training and went to go find him. He had a great response. He had about 70, 80 people looking for him. Six weeks later, Mark goes missing again, and everybody laughs. It's kind of funny. Oh, yeah, we're going to go look for Mark. Uh, remember, we looked for him a little while ago. Um, we get about 60 or 70 people who go look for him. By the fifth or the sixth time that Mark went wandering, people were pretty irritated, like, well, track of him, why am I going to go look for him again? Except that Mark's skills are not increasing each time he wanders. His disease is progressing. Right. So the worse his wandering gets, which is indicative of how worse his disease process is becoming, he's getting fewer and fewer people responding because the boy who cried wolf, we've already been out there before. So when he needs it most, he's getting the least response. We know that Alzheimer's disease is getting worse. Progressively in the United States right now, we're looking at about five and a half million people who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. A number of years ago, the statistic was at age 65, one in eight people had been diagnosed. I've seen the, the research for that. I do know that uh, a couple of people uh, in just the last few years have upped that number to by age 65, one in six people have been diagnosed. I haven't seen the research for that, so I'll stay with one in eight. That's still 13% of our population. So at age 65, one in eight people, we know that age 85, approximately one in two people have Alzheimer's disease. So if somebody goes wandering once or twice or three times, at age 65, 
think about what their wandering might be like at age 75 or at age 85. We are getting right now more Alzheimer's search and rescue related call-outs than just about any other category. Because of GPSs, because of phones, more people are getting rescue. There are far fewer searches. But overall, categorically, Alzheimer's disease is continually exponentially rising. We are facing, with our older population, what some people call a silver tsunami. We are looking at more people aging with less resources in place. And for us to be able to man the number of searches we have, we already rely on volunteers. Uh, The last number I've seen that I can verify, we're looking at, on average, about 125,000 reported search and rescue operations for wandering Alzheimer's patients every year. That number is not going to go down unless we do something to prevent that from happening in the first place. So one of the things I suggest for law enforcement, um, obviously, is partnering with Alzheimer's associations, local chapters, statewide chapters, Alzheimer's Foundation of America, with groups that are providing care so that law enforcement is notified before five hours go by. We need to have a discussion as a country about wandering. As a searcher, I have found more people when I've been off duty, out of uniform, when I'm just at Walmart than I ever did when I was in uniform. We need to look out for our neighbors. We need to look out for our family members. Um, We need to have better ways of um, supporting the community. And one of the things that I do find does help reduce future incidents is, is that if we get called out for your mom, Delilah, when I leave at the end of the day, we found your mom, we bring her home, my job's done, right? Until the next time you need me. But you're going to need me because something failed. So why don't I leave you before I go a package on wandering and Alzheimer's care and, and knowing what that all, yeah. and what to do so that you could reduce opportunities in the future of this occurring. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Kim, our hour has has gotten away from us, and I, like I said, I still think we we just scratched the surface. So I really, really invite you to come on to our show again. Perhaps we can do something in, in collaboration with the Q Center in the future, maybe at a conference or whatnot. But I I think this is so so valuable, and I, and I hate to cut the conversation short, but our hour has gotten away from us. Can you tell us um, how people might get in touch with you, particularly if they want to give donations, because this is so very important, and you and I should keep in touch as well. Well, as far as donations go, um, that is a super wonderful thought, but I would ask that people contact the local search and rescue team in their community and donate directly so that their dollar stays local. Um, We're all in this together. We're the unpaid professional. Um, And I know that teams across the country are always struggling for training dollars, support. You know, even just a little bit of money that helps pay for coffee at the next search is always welcome. Absolutely. Uh, People can can reach me um, through email. Uh, My email is sarlady, as in search and rescue, lady at yahoo.com. Um, or my phone number is 760-315-1895, and sometimes text is a little bit easier than, than direct calling. But um, okay, I just really want to say thank you for what you're doing and for what all of the search and rescue volunteers do every day because I don't think they're recognized for the true impact that they have, and I appreciate that. Well, we appreciate your, your giving us your time here, and, and thank you for so much about what you do. And let's do please keep in touch. Uh, Delilah, any parting thoughts? Yes, thank you so much, Kimberly. This, this has been an hour full, chock full of some great information. 
Well, as, yeah. I, as I told Donna last week, you know, I teach an eight-hour class and I still walk away going, well, we could have spent more time here, talked about this. There is a ton of information out there. We as search and rescue people need to be able to access that information and apply it. Um, every one of these persons is someone's mom, dad, brother, sister, maybe someday one of us, and we just need to bring them home. So thank Absolutely. you. Well, thank you so much, and, and I, I, I will speak with you soon, okay? Uh, that will close out our current edition of Shattered Lives Radio. So thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Delilah. And we will see you next week for our new edition. Everyone have a safe and a wonderful weekend. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.